1: Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. This is the place uh, every week where we gather together electronically to listen in on conversations uh, with people that I like to talk to about a variety of issues. Uh, And today, I'm really uh, excited about talking to one of my favorite writers, Ross Douthat. Many of you, most of you are familiar uh, with his writing in the New York Times. He's a columnist there. And he has a new book called The Decadent Society, How We Became the Victims of Our Own success. Uh, Ross Douthat, thanks so much for being with us today on Signposts. Thanks for having me, Russell. It's great to be here. You know, there are so many things that I would like to talk about uh, today, but, but the first thing I want to talk about, I was really interested in reading your book on decadence because I couldn't help but think about people that I've known who, when things kind of fall apart for them, some of them explicitly collapse. Uh, they get involved in substance abuse or start getting into bar fights or whatever. Uh, th- that sort of thing happens. But then there are other people who just kind of go numb and, and just just sort of get into a, a sort of ditch in their lives. And it seems to me that's pretty much exactly what you're saying is happening to American society is that there's just this this sort of exhaustion and uh, stagnation taking place in the, in the country. What do you mean by that?
0: Yeah, I think that's a that's a reasonable way of saying it, and a pretty good analogy. Uh, the The argument in my book is basically that since the late nineteen sixties and early nineteen seventies, across a big range of indicators—economic and technological, political, cultural, and demographic—the um, United States has stagnated, or decelerated, or entered into a period of sort of age, I guess is one is one way to look at it where we're still, you know we're a very rich society in certain ways, notwithstanding um, what's been happening in the country the last couple of weeks. We're a more stable society than we were in the 1960s. Um, but we're a society where, the horizons of possibility seem to have closed a bit. Um, you know, we went, we went to the moon and discovered that we couldn't go any further. And so the space age was sort of over before it began. Um, we've sort of come to live with much slower economic growth than people expected 50 or 60 years ago. Um, and our technological progress has been concentrated in basically communication and simulation. So we've gotten really good at constructing virtual realities but we haven't made a ton of progress in other areas, energy, medicine, um, transportation, and so on. Um, so we're we're sort of in a place where there are people who feel like we're you know surging towards some, you know, transformed techno-utopian future. This is sort of the Steven Pinker argument. And then there are people who think that we're headed for a cataclysm. And I'm arguing that actually we could sort of go on, reenacting the glory days of the baby boomers for another generation, at least.
1: Well, I was interested. You, you made the point in the book, and I've, I've heard you make the point in, in some other venues as well about popular culture, about film. Of course, you review view movies for National Review and have for a long time. But uh, when I typically would hear someone talk about decadence in popular culture, it would be a preacher or an evangelist talking about uh, explicit sex and, and all of those sorts of things. But you're arguing something different than that. You're, you're arguing that popular culture is really kind of boring Right now, is that is that right?
0: Yes, I think that's right. It's it's in a place of sort of repetition, recycling, rebooting, and you know the sort of prime example of this is the way that the movie industry has been taken over, not just by franchises and blockbusters, but by franchises and blockbusters that just recycle and retell the same stories from again the sort of youth of the baby boomers, whether it's comic book movies or Star Wars movies or Star Trek movies. Um, so if you go back to the 1970s, to the dawn of the modern blockbuster, it's movies like Jaws and Star Wars, which, um, you know, are movies that actually told original stories that had not, you know, they, they weren't completely original, no movie is, but they were, they were not just the umpteenth Marvel movie or the umpteenth remaking of Star Wars. Um, so I think it's sort of pronounced in pop culture. And in moral terms, I think that there's a difference in a way between sort of outrageous immorality and sort of repetitive boring immorality and that the latter is more decadent. So, you know, a culture that has that has orgies might actually be less decadent than a culture where no one has orgies because everyone's just home looking at pornography on their own, right? That there's sort of a there's there was a sort of wild Dionysian culture in the 60s and 70s that was terribly destructive. But it was different from what we have now, which is much more sort of isolation and uh, loneliness and sterility.
1: What about in terms of what we think of as culture wars? Uh, I'm going to be talking to Stephen Prothero here shortly. And one of the things that he and I have gone back and forth about over the years is his uh, his idea that liberals always and, and by liberals, he means not classical liberals, but progressives always win culture wars in the end, and that uh, social conservatives always just adapt to whatever was the, the last controversy. Do you see that happening? Is, is social conservatism changing? or Are the progressives winning that debate uh, or not? It seems to me that that's become complicated a bit in the past uh, several years.
0: Yeah, I think it is complicated. I think that in general, um, there has been a leftward shift in society and social debates. And obviously, you know, the, the shifts on same-sex marriage are a huge and obvious example. Um, and there's been secularization in America over the, over the 50 years that I'm calling decadent, right? The country has gotten somewhat less religious. Um, a lot of people who were sort of loosely affiliated with churches have fallen away and the religious middle is now less Christian and more sort of spiritually minded sort of Oprah Winfrey, um, Deepak Chopra kind of territory. So that's that's a real change. At the same time, there's also been, I think, more stability than people sometimes think. If you look at you know frequent church attendance, sort of the religious core in Catholic and I think especially evangelical churches, there's less change, less secularization than Some of the headlines might make you think there's been a lot of stability on issues like abortion um, over over the last 30 or 40 years. the, The polling on abortion has barely fluctuated. And I think if you think about it in terms of in terms internal to Christianity, right, if you step inside the religious worlds of the different churches, we keep the same debates keep cycling around and around. Um, so the debates over, I mean, we're, we're all Protestant and Catholic alike. We're all still debating what the sexual revolution means, how do churches adapt to it? And that, that I think really hasn't changed a lot since 1975 or so, you know, in my own Catholic church, you get a figure like Pope Francis who comes in and is sort of presented as this, this change agent, this transformational figure. But within a few years into his pontificate, Catholics are arguing, again, along exactly the same lines about, you know, married priests and female priests and divorce and remarriage and all of these issues that they, we've been arguing about since the Second Vatican Council. I think there's some similarities to liberal versus conservative debates and evangelicalism too. I think it's, there's been a struggle among religious believers to figure out how to sort of get past or transcend or even just settle arguments that really came in with the cultural revolutions 50 or 60 years ago.
1: I remember I laugh all the time thinking about a dinner party or something where you and I were talking and we were talking about Pope Francis. It was it was at the very beginning of the Pope Francis uh, pontificate, and I was defending him. <laughs> and uh, the late great Michael Cromerty, uh walked by and said, "Oh, here we've got the Council of Trent being reenacted." I said, "Yeah, but the, the Protestants defending the Pope here," uh, and so it's it's kind of turned uh, turned around. I wonder, do you? Do you feel better uh, now? I mean, you've written a lot about Pope Francis and and some of your concerns, uh, but things really haven't changed dramatically. It doesn't seem, from the outside looking in, in the way that some speculated they would. Uh, Do do you think that Catholicism is maybe more stable now?
0: I think you could argue that, in a sense, what I'm calling decadence, this reversion to old battle lines and old arguments, has defeated Pope Francis, or at least defeated the part of Pope Francis that I was most worried about, the sort of would-be revolutionary Pope. Um, So there was a, you know, a sort of sharp debate about divorce and remarriage that seemed like it was setting up um, a kind of domino effect of changes where, you know, you were going to move on to have married priests, female deacons, if not female priests, blessings for same-sex unions potentially. And there's still some action on that in Germany, sort of the heart of liberal Catholicism. But over the last couple of years, um, Rome itself has tended to disappoint the liberals and progressives. And the old battle lines, the old stalemate has has set in again. And, you know, again, as a, as a conservative Catholic who was worried about the direction of the pontificate, that's good news. At the same time, it's, again, it's not that you've had some sort of Forward movement, some sort of sense that the church is transcending its post-Vatican II battle lines. It's more that you know they've they've just sort of hardened, and we're <laughs> in the same place we've been for fifty years. Yeah, and at, not at even a pope, time, and not even a pope can sort of escape that stalemate. I guess you could say.
1: Yeah, I, I was uh, I was thinking about you. You had a back and forth with, uh, I think, with Patrick Deneen uh, on Twitter about the the argument between decadence and collapse and I think you said something like okay I grant you uh, the times right now look more like collapse than than decadence but my my thesis still stands and it made me it made me wonder what do you think is going on with American Catholicism right now there was a time not very many years ago when I used to laugh when I would read old Baptist writings that always acted as though the major threat to religious freedom would be coming from Rome. And I would say, you know, I'm working with the bishops all the time on all of these issues. And now uh, you you have all of these voices seeming to emerge uh, all of a sudden saying that liberal democracy is wrong and is a product of the Reformation, Enlightenment, a couple of people making arguments for kidnapping Jewish babies to have them baptized in the early 20th century and and all of these sorts of arguments that seem to have come out of nowhere from the kind of American Catholicism that we had with uh, Richard John Newhouse or Robbie George. Is that just an outlier or is something actually changing in American Catholicism away from uh, freedom and democracy uh, at all? I mean, I think First of all, the intellectual debates are outliers.
0: And if you went to your local Catholic parish, you know, un- unless it was sort of hyper-traditional and started polling people about whether they thought the American founding and the constitutional order were good things, you would not find a ton of people saying, no, as a Catholic, I feel I need to reject liberal democracy root and branch, right? So, so in that sense, it's, it is a debate of the intelligentsia at the moment. Um, But I think it does reflect a couple real changes in Catholicism since the sort of heyday of evangelical Catholic cooperation. The first is, in a way, I mean, I was talking about it as a a stalemate, but there's actually been a kind of further polarization in Catholic opinion um, in the Western world, and especially the U.S. over the last 15 years, where I think the combination of the sex abuse crisis weakening the credibility of the bishop's. And then the Francis era, making conservative Catholics frightened of liberal Catholicism again, has pushed a subset of conservative Catholics further to the right, into a more sort of a more paranoid, sometimes or just um, just worried posture about um, the impact of sort of liberalism within their own church and whether they can trust their church as an institution. And then at the same time, the fact that um, Politically and culturally, that evangelical and Catholic alliance sort of peaked with George W. Bush. And ever since then, there has been, you know, some kind of move leftward in the culture, um, a little more secularization, a sort of liberalism itself, secular liberalism has become more hostile to the liberty of the church. And I think all of that has not surprisingly revived this long standing Catholic line of argument that is skeptical of. Of the sort of you know of of liberal democracy that sort of regards it maybe as sort of a second best compared to a more fully Christian society, and I, I think this is more sharper in Catholicism, both because Catholicism has this older tradition that you know U.S. Southern Baptists don't really have of sort of throne and altar politics, and also because. Numerically, evangelicalism in the last 10 years has been more stable than Catholicism. Catholicism has suffered more losses and is in a bigger period, I think, of sort of institutional decay. Um, Catholic church going numbers have fallen, evangelical church going numbers have stayed solid. Um, And especially if you're in certain, you know, red states that are heavily Protestant, I don't think you feel your sort of cultural marginalization quite as much as you do, let's say, in. The once very Catholic now, very secular parts of the northeast where where I live, right. so I think I think the Catholic relationship to American liberalism has taken a turn for the worse for for a lot of different reasons.
1: but but you would think that that would push one in the opposite direction. I mean, it it seems very uh, unlikely that even if installing Charlemagne, uh, in the 21st century, were theologically right, and I would argue it's not. But even if it were, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and well, and so I mean, it, it, well
0: here, but here I'll turn it around on you, right? That I mean, I think a lot of your co-religionists, a lot of evangelicals and Baptists, have their own version of that, where oh, it's absolutely. not installing yeah. Charlemagne, but it's in you know, if we install Donald Trump, if we have the right, right. the right leader, right. we can we can you know resist the tides of, of the moment and sort of, and, and I don't think, I mean, I think what the, what the Catholic, whether you want to call them traditionalists or integralists or something do get right is that political power does have real uses. It's, I I don't think culture is, people will say, Oh, politics is downstream of culture. So you have to worry about the culture first and then politics takes care of itself. But I don't think that's how it works. It's more of a, you know, a, a cycle or a whirlpool where, Sometimes politics shapes culture. Sometimes culture shapes politics. But you need to think about how you want to use power when you have it in thinking about, you know, what we call the culture war.
1: You talk about in the book uh, this idea that a great awakening is going to turn everything around. Now, there's a certain kind of evangelical that will constantly say that we're going to have another great awakening. Uh, all we need is a depression or a pandemic or uh, something like that, and people will see their mortality and fragility and, and, and turn back uh, toward religion. And you argue that's not likely to happen in the way that we think of it, that, that may be a slow motion great awakening, uh, but not some cataclysmic turnaround. Where do you think American religion is going? Particularly as somebody who you wrote in your book, Bad Religion, about sort of these heretical movements ranging from prosperity gospel, Joel Osteen sort of stuff, all the way over to Deepak Chopra and and Oprah and all that that you mentioned earlier. Uh, Where do you think it's going? Well, I think the challenge for Christians
0: is that we've had a couple of kind of awakening moments. I think you can see the counterculture of the 60s and 70s as having some elements of a great awakening in it. And I think you can see what literally gets called the great awakening now, right? This sort of strong progressive turn among younger, especially younger white liberals. That has religious elements, too. You can't watch like the Black Lives Matter protests right now and not see a sort of spiritual and liturgical element in there. But the Christian churches, unlike in past periods of American history, have done a very poor job capturing and channeling that kind of energy. Um, And so for that matter, have like sort of even heretical institutions or startup institutions, right? It's, you have a lot of really significant spiritual gurus in American life right now who don't have churches or institutions behind them. They just have platforms. And, you know, I mentioned Oprah earlier, you know, to take an example from the last presidential campaign, a figure like Marianne Williamson, right, is a very familiar figure from American history. She looks a lot like, you know, Mary Baker Eddy, who founded Christian science, right? But, Mary Baker Eddy actually founded a church. Marianne Williamson, you know, just sort of has a platform. And so you have a lot of you have religious energy that just ends up sort of being channeled into sometimes into politics, but also into this kind of individualistic spirituality that 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 doesn't renew or reinvent institutional Christianity. So that's one challenge, I think. You you'll get an actual Christian Great Awakening when there's a Christian church or churches that figures out how to tap into people's spiritual hunger and tap into these awakening moments um, with a sort of orthodox Christian message, and I, I don't, I don't think that I, I think that could happen at some point, but it isn't happening really right now. Um, and also, yeah, you mentioned the longer term. I mean, the longer term argument would be that there is a sort of, you know, that that individualism. At a certain point, just leads to isolation, loneliness, and unhappiness, and that, and and you know, also people not getting married or having kids or doing things that sort of carry on family and community. So you could imagine a long term future where, if Christian communities stay resilient and keep having kids and keep having sort of sturdy churches, that the culture could sort of drift back to them as individualism proves sort of miserable. But that I think is more of like a you know. 60-year image rather than an image of like a sort of fire on the landscape, Jonathan Edwards preaching kind of thing.
1: You know, I wonder if you agree. I I, I think it was Steve Bruce, the secularization writer, uh, but it may not have been. Someone who was pointing out that a lot of these uh, spiritual but not religious uh, movements, he attributes to being upstream from the sexual abuse crisis and other things that you mentioned where institutions have harmed people. And so you have this sense of, I can't be hurt if I'm part of this ethereal movement that really is just about me. Uh, I don't have to deal with predatory clergy. I don't have to deal with seeing hypocrisy and the institutions fail. Do you think there's anything to that, just generally in American life?
0: Yeah. And I think it applies beyond religion, right? I mean, we're in an age of general suspicion of institutions, political institutions, just as much, if not more than religious institutions. And part of that reflects the fact that we're in an age of transparency, where it's very hard for institutions, this this is, you know, often a very good thing, that it's hard for institutions to sort of cover up problems or sweep crimes under the rug, right? To sort of us, we have a we have access to a scale of knowledge about the inner workings of our institutions that people didn't have 50 or 60 or 70 years ago, and that in turn creates this sort of crisis of belief. Like you know, if you go back to the 50s and 60s and look at how Congress worked, Congress was much more effective then than it is today, but it was also pretty corrupt in various ways, right? Like Lyndon Johnson, the great wheeler dealer, was had people around him or he himself involved in things that, you know, if they were exposed today would would, would bring a career to, to an end. And there does seem to be some trade-off there where when institutions can sort of conceal some of the corruption involved in them, they end up having more trust. And then when the corruption is exposed, which, you know, hopefully leads to punishment for the guilty, you, you have trouble putting that trust back together. You have trouble, con- yeah, as you say, convincing people that they can afford to sort of Submit themselves, right? I mean, this is what what you know. Any kind of small, low orthodox Christianity asks you to submit at some level to some authority, and I think that's harder for Americans to to imagine doing today than it was before mass media, the internet, and everything, every other form of exposure.
1: This is Ross Douthat, and the book is the decadent society, how we became the victims of our own success. I really commend it to you, especially those of you who are involved in leading churches. It will help you have an understanding of what's going on in the culture around us. Russ Douthat, it's always great to talk to you. Thanks for being on Signpost today.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Russell. Be well.
1: Thanks for listening, everybody, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, or wherever you listen, and check out the cover art. Just uh, tap on it or swipe on it, and you'll see the show notes. There'll be a link to Ross's book and other information that you might have missed. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts.